morning, again in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. It's where we're going to start, at least, this morning. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning we come boldly before you in Christ alone. This morning we rejoice, even as we have sung in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We rejoice because we know that because of Christ's birth, because of his death, because of his resurrection, we know that we have a perfect high priest. We know that as we come boldly in Christ alone, that our prayers are heard. Heavenly Father, this morning, even as has already been mentioned, there are many burdens on our heart this morning. And yet the hope that we have in Christ is greater than any burden that holds us down. And Father, this morning as we turn our attention to the Word of God, we pray that these distractions, we pray that these burdens would fade away as the glory of God comes into view. As we turn our attention to the Word of God, as the Spirit works through the Word for your glory in each and every one of us. <coughs> Only Father, I pray that you would give me boldness to proclaim the Word of God with clarity and with authority, that you would be lifted up Receive the glory, do your name. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. A few years ago, I read a fascinating book called Genghis Khan in the Making of the Modern World. I love history. I love reading books like this along these lines where where. Parts of history that I may not know as much about, I just, I, I dive in and I, I read, I get to know. And this book, Genghis Khan, In the Making of the Modern World, as I, as I came to it, I, I was not very familiar with Genghis Khan. I knew the name. I knew he was Mongolian. I knew he was a warlord. But as I read this book, it was eye-opening. As I read this book, I came to see Genghis Khan not as just a barbaric warlord far away, but as a world-changing leader. How is it that I knew so little about someone who looms so large in history? I suspect that like me, there are some here who may not be as familiar with the name Genghis Khan. You probably know who he is. You may even know the area in which he lived in. But you may not have grasped just how big of an impact he had on history and the modern world in which we live today. Genghis Khan lived from 1162 to 1227. The man who would one day be called Genghis Khan was born Temujin. He was born near the border of Mongolia and Siberia. Temujin had a very difficult, a very violent childhood. At a young age, his father was killed by a rival clan 
and his own clan, rather than to give up their own food to support Temujin, his mother, and his six siblings, just kicked them out of the clan. If your father's not here, you have nothing to give us. At around 10 years old, it's likely that Temujin killed his own older brother in a dispute, therefore making himself around 10 years old as the sole leader of his little family. Throughout his teenage years, he did what he had to do in order to survive in, in this region, in this violent culture. He defended his family. He raided rival clans. And in the course of this, he built his na a name for himself as a fearsome warrior. As his fame grew, so did his followers and his power. But Temujin was, was not just a, a, a vicious warrior. He was a wise leader as well. See, Temujin, unlike his rivals, unlike the other people in this culture, did not simply appoint those he liked or family members to places of power, but he promoted those who deserved it. He promoted allies who'd shown themselves to be competent. Because of this practice, his army was better organized than others. And eventually, he was able to unite all the warring clans of Mongolia. And he was given the title Genghis Khan. Upon uniting these tribes, it made Genghis Khan ruler of over some one million people. And again, we see his wisdom as a leader. He suppressed the traditional causes of tribal warfare, the things that had divided these different tribes. He did this by abolishing inherited titles. He forbade the selling, the kidnapping of women. He banned enslavement of Mongols. He made livestock theft punishable by death. But he didn't stop there. Not only did he do these things to keep these clans together, but he promoted the clan's influence in the outside world. He ordered the adoption of a writing system. He conducted a regular census. He granted diplomatic immunity to foreign ambassadors, and he allowed freedom of religion well before the idea had caught on anywhere else in the world. Don't get me wrong, Genghis Khan was brutal, but he was also wise. He went on to conquer twice as much land as any other person in history. His empire stretched from the Sea of Japan in the east to the Caspian Sea, coming to the doorstep of Europe itself. Genghis Khan united east and west as never before. He promoted diplomacy and freedom of religion. He died invading China on August 18, 1227, and remarkably, his last ruling descendant was not deposed until 1920. There are very few people in history who have impacted the world in which you live more than Genghis Khan. And yet so little is known about him. It would be fair 
Genghis Khan could rightly be called the forgotten world conqueror of history. As we come to our passage this morning, as we're getting closer to Christmas, we find ourselves in the midst of a short Christmas series entitled The Triune God of Christmas. The Triune God of Christmas. Last week, last Sunday morning, we explored God the Father who gave. We looked at John 3.16. In the evening service, we turned our attention to Philippians 2, to God the Son who came. This morning, we're going to turn our attention to Luke 1, specifically verse 35 and other passages, and we'll see the Holy Spirit who supports The Holy Spirit has sometimes been called the forgotten God. Because he works so often behind the scenes and he is so easily overlooked. Specifically here at Christmas we see this phenomenon. In fact, I would guess that for the most part this morning, we'd be hard pressed not just to define the Holy Spirit's role in the incarnation, but to come up with any reference to the Holy Spirit in the Christmas story at all. If I went around to each of you and said, write down a verse or passage where where you see the Holy Spirit at Christmas. How many of you could write something? The Holy Spirit is often the forgotten God of Christmas. And yet, as we will see this morning, the Holy Spirit plays a vital role, not just in Jesus' birth, but all throughout his earthly life and ministry. This morning we'll see the Holy Spirit's role in the Christmas story as he both lays the groundwork for the Incarnation and then supports Jesus in the Incarnation. We'll bounce around a little bit between the first few chapters of Matthew and Luke. But in these verses we'll see the Spirit who prepares, the Spirit who proclaims, and the Spirit who provides. The first thing we see in verse uh, in Luke 1.35 is the Spirit who prepares. Look with me, if you will, at verse 35. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, the, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. The context of this verse is in a conversation between Mary and the angel Gabriel, who's been sent by God. Gabriel comes with news to Mary. In verse 30 to 33, Gabriel tells Mary that she will conceive and she will bear a son, and that the son will be the son of God. He will be Emmanuel, God with us. You can imagine how overwhelming this, this news must have been to Mary, who at a very young age here, who's at a very young age here, Mary simply responds, how could this be? How can this be? How can this be? It's interesting that Mary's, the, the, the contrast between uh, when the angel, the angel comes to Zechariah, and Zechariah is rebuked in his response. But as the angel comes to Mary and Mary asks a question, she's not rebuked. Because Mary's question does not display unbelief, but curiosity, understandable confusion. 
Mary's question is a legitimate question, for in Mary's current circumstances, conception would not merely be difficult, but physically impossible. For Mary is a virgin. She has not known a man. How can this be? As you come to Luke 1.35, Gabriel, the angel here, answers this question. How can this be? This is how Mary, the Holy Spirit, will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. See, the fact that Mary had not known a man is not a hindrance to the God who can do all his holy will. In fact, it is clear in Gabriel's response that this conception will come not from man at all, but from God. Specifically, this conception will come from the Holy Spirit. It's important to note in the verse here that the Holy Spirit is equated with the power of the highest. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. As the Holy Spirit comes upon you, the power of the highest will overshadow you. The Holy Spirit here in this verse is not seen as a, as a backup or as a substitute or as a lesser version of God than the Father or than the Son. When the Holy Spirit comes, He will come with the full power of the highest because He, like the Father and the Son, is fully God. It's the Holy Spirit who will come upon Mary. It's the Holy Spirit who will overshadow Mary. The language here of overshadow carries the idea of to hover over. It's like a, a cloud that passes over the earth. And as it moves, its shadow is cast down on the ground. It's language that harkens back to Genesis 1-2 where the Spirit of God is said to hover over the face of the waters. The Holy Spirit is active in this. The Holy Spirit is not passive at creation and He is not passive in the incarnation. He is moving. He is creating. He is working. And the same Spirit who hovered over the waters at creation here hovers over the womb of Mary. It is a miraculous thing that will happen here. God is the one who is at work. I invite you to flip over with the, if you will, to Matthew 1. Matthew 1. We'll come back to Luke 1, so you may want to mark that. But flip with me to Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew 1, Joseph, Mary's betrothed, receives the same message from an angel of the Lord. In fact, leading up to when the, the angel talks to Joseph in, in Matthew 1.18, Matthew describes Mary as being with child from the Holy Spirit. A few verses later in Matthew 1.20, the angel tells Joseph, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Why? Why? For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Because this is God's doing. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
Matthew 1 supports the same thing that we see in Luke 1. It is the Holy Spirit who comes upon Mary. And Mary is with child from the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that in these verses it is the language of conception that is used rather than the language of creation. Mary is not told that a child would, would appear in her, but that she would conceive by the Holy Spirit. Joseph also is told not just that Mary is with child generally, but specifically she has conceived of the Holy Spirit. This child does not simply appear. Jesus is not just created ex nihilo. Now the idea here is not that the Holy Spirit is somehow sexually involved with Mary. As we see in, in the myths of pagans. But her conception does come from the Holy Spirit. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He has a body that is, holy, that is fully human and yet that is uncorrupted. Jesus is wholly normal and wholly unique. In some way, Jesus has a body and a soul by generation through Mary and is at the same time uniquely created by the Spirit of God in Mary's womb. It is the Holy Spirit. It is conceived. As, as Matthew 1.20 says, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. In fact, you'll notice, and back to Luke, right, you turn back to Luke 1, you'll notice in the end of this verse, of the end of Luke 1.35, goes on to say, not just that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you, but the next word, notice, therefore, Therefore, because of this, therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. It is precisely because Mary is with child from the Holy Spirit that this child will be holy and that he will be called the Son of God. We cannot overstate the importance of Jesus' conception. You see, without the Holy Spirit, there is no virgin birth. And if there is no virgin birth, there can be no cross of Christ. And if there is no cross, there is no resurrection. And we are, of, mo of all men, the most miserable. But it is precisely because Mary conceived Jesus by the Holy Spirit that Jesus is able to atone for our sins. He must be fully God, and he must be fully man. As we come to Luke 1.35, we see that it is the Father who gives. It is the Son who is born, and it is the Spirit who is at work. Just as without the Father there is no incarnation, and without the Son there is no incarnation, so without the Spirit there is no incarnation of Jesus Christ. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit 
who's fully involved in the incarnation and is there fully invested in your salvation. There is not one rogue member of the Trinity. They're at work together as one Godhead for you. This morning, marvel at your great God who does miraculous things. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is nothing short of a miracle. And it is your great God who has done it. In the incarnation, see the love not just of the Father or of the Son, but the great love of the Holy Spirit. And this Christmas, don't forget the Holy Spirit. As you read the Christmas story, as you see a nativity scene, marvel at the full Godhead who acted on your behalf in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we see the Spirit who proclaims. Spirit proclaims. As you read the accounts of Jesus' birth as recorded in the Gospels, it becomes clear that the Holy Spirit does not just show up out of nowhere to hover over Mary and and then he's done and he disappears. But he is vitally involved in laying the groundwork and preparing the way for Jesus to come. Specifically, we see him proclaiming the truth of Jesus' coming through individuals prior to and after the birth of Jesus. We'll stay here in Luke 1 for a second. Verses 39 to 45 record for us that Mary, upon hearing this news, after Gabriel had had left, Mary quickly travels to visit her relative Elizabeth, who was also miraculously pregnant in her old age. It's a fascinating encounter. As Mary arrives, and and look with me if you will, specifically in verse 41 of Luke 1. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, that the babe leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed. For there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. Notice in that passage that Elizabeth speaks as she is filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in this interaction is active. He is at work. Just a few verses later, in Luke 1, verses 67 to 79. Again, we see the Holy Spirit. So he comes upon Zechariah. In fact, look with me, verse 67. Now his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And has spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began that we should be saved from our enemies and from the, the hand of all who hate us 
to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and shadow and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Here too, the Holy Spirit fills Zacharias as he prophesies regarding his son, John, whose wife Elizabeth has just given birth to. His mouth is open and he is filled with the Spirit and he proclaims the truth. He reminds people of what God has said, of his faithfulness, of his goodness. Well, the salvation which is to come. Just a few verses later in Luke 2, verses 25 to 35. Now we find ourselves after Jesus' birth. In fact, eight days specifically after Jesus' birth as he's brought into the temple to be presented to the Lord. And we see in the temple that there is this man. Verse 25, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. The thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Here we see this man, Simeon. And just like we saw with Zacharias, just like we saw with Elizabeth, the Holy Spirit is upon him. In fact, we're told in verse 25, 26, and 27 specifically what that means, what the Holy Spirit is doing. 25 tells us that the Holy Spirit is upon him. 26 specifically tells us that the Holy Spirit had spoken to him, had told him, this is what will happen. And verse 27 tells us specifically that the Holy Spirit had led this man to this point. And he speaks to Mary and Joseph and Jesus. These passages, in these passages, we see very clearly that leading up to Jesus' death and afterwards, the Holy Spirit is at work proclaiming the truth through people. He's laying the foundation. 
He doesn't just appear on the scene. He is active. He's at work. Laying the necessary groundwork for the incarnation, proclaiming the truth of the incarnation, of what God has done and of what God will do, and what God is doing. In fact, this perfectly aligns with what we see of the Holy Spirit in the rest of the New Testament, continuing through the life of Christ, even into the church age, where we find ourselves. In John 14, 6, Jesus says this, he promises, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit will proclaim to you. He will teach you. He will remind you of all that I have said. Just two chapters later, in John 16, Jesus says this, When the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak in his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. We see not just in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, but throughout the Gospels into the New Testament, is that the Holy Spirit proclaims the truth. He proclaims the truth through people in the Gospels. He proclaims the truth through the Word of God. The Spirit speaks the truth. In fact, praise the Lord this morning that not only does the Holy Spirit speak the truth to us from God, but He speaks to God for us. Romans 8.26 says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He doesn't just speak the truth to you through the Word. He speaks to God for you. Holy Spirit loves you enough to proclaim the truth. Finally, we see the Holy Spirit provides. The Spirit provides. Not only is the Spirit involved with Mary in the Incarnation, not only does he speak the truth, preparing the way for the Incarnation, but all throughout Jesus' earthly ministry and life, the Holy Spirit actively, is actively involved in the life of Christ. He fills Jesus. He leads Jesus. He sustains Jesus. I'm not going to dive too deeply here because my focus this morning is mainly on the Christmas story. But I think I'd be remiss not to point out his continued ministry in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. In fact, a survey of Jesus' earthly life and ministry would reveal that all throughout his ministry, the Holy Spirit was leading and working in and through Jesus. Specifically, in Matthew 12, 28, Jesus casts out demons and it's said, in the power of the Spirit. In Luke 4, 14 to 15, Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 2, and he applies it to himself. He preaches and he prophesies in the power of the Spirit. And this passage also implies that he does his miracles in the power of the Spirit. From his conception to this resurrection, the Holy Spirit fills, leads, sustains, and works through Jesus. In fact, this should come as no surprise. In his book entitled The Holy Spirit, John uh, Walvoord points out that the Holy, in, in the Old Testament passages, 
like Isaiah 11, verses 2 to 3, Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4, and Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 2, these all explicitly state that Christ will be filled with the fullness of the Spirit. And then passages like John 3, 34 make it clear that the Holy Spirit did indeed fill Christ without measure. Jesus is fully God, and he is fully man. And in the incarnation, he relied on the Holy Spirit. And the good news for you and me is that that same Spirit that filled Christ is promised to those who are in Christ. The same Spirit that empowers and sustains Christ's church first empowered and sustained Christ himself during his earthly ministry. Encourage this morning that in Christ you have all that you need for life and godliness. As Peter tells us, in the word of God and in the spirit of God. In Galatians 5, we are encouraged to develop and display the fruit of the spirit. Those of us who are in Christ. In Ephesians 5.18, Paul goes on. Paul goes so far as to command that we be filled with the spirit. He's given you his word. He has given you a helper, the Holy Spirit. As we look at the incarnation this morning, we've seen the last two weeks, we've seen how all three members of the Trinity are vitally involved in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. They're vitally involved at Christmas. The Christmas, Christmas is not the sole work of Jesus Christ. And it's not the sole work of God the Father or of the Holy Spirit. They are all at work together perfectly for the glory of God. To save men from their sins. We see the Father who gives, the Son who comes, and the Holy Spirit who supports, who sustains, who keeps In conclusion this morning, be empowered by the love of God as displayed at Christmas. The Bible tells us that we love God because he first loved us. As we come to Christmas, as we meditate upon what God has given to us in Christ, what Christ has done for us in the incarnation as he came, and what the Spirit has done for us in supporting and sustaining that work and us. Rejoice at the love of God for you. Stand in awe at a God that loves you this much. Secondly, be emboldened by the power of the Spirit within you. If you are in Christ, this power, this Spirit indwells you. And you are commanded to be filled with Him. Be emboldened by the Spirit that is within you. The fullness of God. He's not less than God. He dwells within you. God has given Him to you. He's the helper to lead, to guide, to keep, to sustain. Be emboldened by that. 
And finally, be encouraged to be filled with the Spirit. Be encouraged to, to speak the truth. To display the fruits of the Spirit. To grow in Christ. Be encouraged not just to, to sit back and to marvel what God has done for you in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, but to get up and to take action. To obey. To speak the truth. To tell the world, look what my God has done for me and for you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Full Godhead. Fully at work in the incarnation to save you from your sins. Rejoice in a God who loves you in that way.